This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Falls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a champion for children's education. A former head teacher, she worked in education for the last 31 years and always had unconventional but effective methods for getting kids into school and turning poor performing schools around. When Michael Gove was Education Secretary, he said his policy was to clone this woman 23,000 times over. He didn't quite get there. But in December 2020, she was appointed as a new Children's Commissioner, putting her in charge of children's interests and education. Since her appointment, she has worked to raise awareness of how the pandemic has affected vulnerable children. My guest today is Rachel D'Souza. So Rachel, to begin on this podcast, and first, thanks very much for coming into the office today. We ask you, how would you describe your childhood? Was it a happy one? Well, Katie, so I think definitely my childhood was happy, but I'm not sure everyone around me was happy. So I think it's quite interesting in that way. So, I mean, I was born in Scunthorpe, daughter of a steel worker, very Irish Catholic family. I have four brothers and my mother's family were, well, my mum was a refugee So she had Hungarian-Austrian background. She was born in 45 and her mother wanted to flee the the Russians in the east and so put her in an orphanage in Bavaria and came over. So, And then brought her, when she got married again to a Ukrainian, brought her over when she was seven. So quite a mixed background. It's not neutral because it was in a steel town. So, you know, the, the steelworks sort of had all the prisoners of wars and attracted sort of a lot of immigrant populations. And so that mix wasn't that unusual. So you grew up in Scunthorpe. And as you mentioned, your father was a steel worker. That was a around the time of the miners' strikes, wasn't it? Absolutely, and the steelworkers' strikes. So yeah. I definitely lived through those and, in fact, was on free school meals and sometimes didn't know where the next meal was coming from during the steelworks, steelworks strikes. And I was a sixth former during the miners' strikes, so it was very much on our agenda. Did politics come up much when your parents... Yes, yeah, so there? massively. So basically, the whole town, really, in the school, was there was quite a strong steel-working kind of Labour, left-wing vibe. And that was very, very much part of what we're in. But, but my immigrant grandparents had a completely different view and they took a very global view so I learned grew up learning Ukrainian and my grandfather wrote for a dissident magazine whilst being a steel worker and in fact my first political memory was writing to Margaret Thatcher when I was 10 in Ukrainian about freeing some dissidents and she wrote back so yeah so so both sides well she agreed with me completely and was going to do her best to free Valentine Moroz. How did you find education growing up? Um, You went to Comprehensive and ultimately you've spoken about some of the career advice you got suggesting that you you were doomed yeah well uh, two bits of career advice so I was educated by the nuns in the local comprehensive and it was great it was a really good school in lots of ways and a real community school and I'm really grateful for everything they did for me but the two only two bits of career advice I got one was from sister Anna who basically told me I couldn't wash up and would never get a husband and ought to focus on that but you know I wasn't too bothered about that and the other when I was a very studious and quite pious 11 year old the head nun sister Louie called me in and said we think you could be head girl one day and I felt great and then she said and then join us 
It wasn't for me. By 14, there was a different Madonna that I was interested in. And, you know, but great to be asked. Yeah, well, when we had Therese Coffey on this podcast, she said her early ambition was to be a nun. But ideally be a nun who also did mechanics. I was between two, but you went. I was more, I would have been a priest, definitely. I was interested in that, especially with the four brothers. I felt it was quite unfair that they were able to do that. But the calling to be a nun didn't call me. And you've also spoken a little bit about how, obviously, your teacher was saying, oh, be careful, you could be a rubbish wife. But um, what was the sense amongst kind of family at the time? Was there a sense that you were kind of growing up to be wives and mothers or? or... Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, when I, I remember looking out the window, watching the boys playing cricket, and uh, thinking that they would all go to the steelworks and that we would all get jobs in Boots or Smiths and and we were being prepared to marry young. But I really, I think I had that thing from my grandparents about education. You know, however poor you are, you get your education, you can make your own life. And despite having some unsettled years at school, I got had some really good teachers at Sixth Form College who just inspired me with that rigour and educational rigour and you know and uh, so I wanted to go on and study and yeah and I studied philosophy at university you went to do philosophy and theology so was it before you went to university that you taught yourself Greek yeah so yeah, that was I, that. I didn't get there yeah it was well not not fantastic classical Greek it was just New Testament Greek but I did have Ukrainian I had you know learnt Ukrainian so it's the same script but but no I think we were really really got some of the best teaching you could imagine particularly at sixth form and real commitment and and it just opened a world for me so do you think that's the point when you started to think you wanted a career in education or did that come later later so I wanted to study so I went to Heathrop which was Jesuit college and you know really immersed myself in study of philosophy and theology and it was really interesting time. So the young Jesuits were flying off to do, you know, Chile and, and doing all sorts. So I, I was thinking about social justice and making a difference. But I actually thought, well, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not from a wealthy background. So I'll go train to be an accountant. And I lasted two weeks training as an accountant and realised as I was doing it. on so my, the math. No, it was awful. And I just realised that, you know, I want to be a teacher and got myself so I had had a year off after college and then got myself trained at King's and the second I stepped foot in the classroom I knew it was it was for me. Now your first posting I think was in Oxford is that correct and then you went to Tower Hamlet so I wonder just for listeners perhaps you could explain the contrasting experiences of the two. I went to Oxford because I got married and my husband was going to do his MSc in Oxford so I thought well I'd get a job so it was Kidlington it was a nice sort of town it it was a fairly comprehensive school but it was you know it was a really nice place to have your first job I was a head of department straight away then of course he went back to London start his work in probation and criminal justice so I thought well I'll go to Hamlets I'll go and I mean it was a massive difference it was just at the time the Bangladeshi community was arriving it was a school called Sir John Cass School and when the first league tables came out in my sort of first year there we were the bottom of the league tables in England so I mean the social deprivation the issues community was facing were massive but it was there that I really learned how to do school improvement I'd often you know have to teach 16 or more children all together you know and and also you had a community who had that immigrant desire for education as well so despite all the social issues we really started to move the school and it actually became one of the most improved so I learned a lot there 
But I also met my first, you know, some of some terrible issues there. I mean, I'll never forget a young Somali girl, Hodder, who was basically living in slavery. She, she was not even with her own family and she got tuberculosis and there were things it's hard to imagine deportations from the classroom all sorts going on but you know I remember it really fondly it was a great community to work in. Were there points when you felt overwhelmed by it? At first at first I just you know I, I really didn't know if I could do it because it was nothing like nothing I've faced before but gradually my confidence grew and actually the the welcome and the sort of affection of the young people in the community meant it was really transformative I think laid the foundation for what I was able to do later on. When you left there what were a few of the kind of things you've seen improve in a positive way? Oh I mean it's immense I mean that school went from being the bottom in the the English league tables to being one of the most improved schools in the country later on I mean what I did see was a change in leadership that made a massive difference and just a belief that you can that you know it can be done and I think that's the basis of all improvement. Now at 36 you become a head teacher daunting? So I think I think it was daunting so I was a deputy head in a school in Luton with a very good head and the school down the road Halliard High School was going to become an academy and it was in the early days of the academy movement it'll have been one of the 50th and in those days academy principals had been ahead twice and were called sir something and I was this 30 something year old deputy but I went to visit the school and I looked around and I just had that feeling that you know we've got to fix it and so put myself in every which way possible to to get the job I had to I was interviewed by the DFE around a huge table with about 10 of them but got the job and yeah it was very daunting there were times where you know I wondered if I we would succeed did you find um obviously being a fairly young head that you commanded respect instantly from some of your colleagues or did you have to fight a bit the sense that you did deserve to be the person in charge? So I think it was more, um, we didn't have any colleagues. So we took over this this school, you know, it was bottom 200 school, only 17% of children were getting five, you know, good grades with maths and English. And there was something like 26 teacher vacancies and most of year 11 hadn't had an English teacher. So, I mean, the first thing we had to do was try and get teachers from all around the world. I remember someone rolling up on the on the front lawn saying they were from Kansas and they were here to teach English. So the first thing was pulling together a team that could teach. We did attract a lot of the young, bright young things in Luton, the young teachers who came onto my team. And we were a bit like Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Everyone thought we'd fail and we were just going to do it for the children. Now, you have built up a reputation um, for turning struggling schools around, as I mentioned in the introduction, but part of that is the methods you've used to do that, which have been described as quite traditional. I wondered if you could talk us through some of them. So I have in my notes, you know, classical music before assembly. You can tell me what is, is and isn't methods you use. <laughs> you know, certain uniforms, no mobile phones. Yeah, all, all the above. I mean, I think my, it's strange because it sounds, those some of those things sound traditional, but what I wanted to do was what worked. So the first thing I did and that the academy movement allowed us to do was throw the rule book out the window. We didn't, you know, in a sense, we, we needed to do what we needed to do to get those kids to achieve. Now, what I found in that first academy was a sense of flatness and hopelessness and failure. And there wasn't a sense of community or ethos. So we did things like, you know, buy the football team uniform, proper kit. And I would go to every football match 
so that they didn't fight. So, you know, and then they start winning and then are, you know, and it was the same with, with grades, you know, how we're going to succeed, what can we do? So, so one of the things that we didn't have, we only had one maths teacher. So I, we put the entire year group in the hall and taught the maths that one teacher up on the stage and all the rest of us supporting. And then we basically, the younger kids would say, you know, can we have whole year group teaching as well? So we did whatever it took. Now, uniforms worked. Of course, uniforms work if children can't afford clothes. And, you know, that was important. Music, really important. It's a great way. You know, schools are so much more than just their academic learning, even though that's important. So whether on our launch day in that school, I remember calling one of my music teachers had been an opera singer. I knew the kids wouldn't have heard opera. So we had all the great and the good in, all the students, and then she sang, asked her to sing my favourite, favourite piece. You know, the piece from Room With A View. It's such a great piece. And she she stood there in front of the children and, and sang this and their faces, like, wow and same with we had one young lad who was accepted into the Arsenal youth team so we paid for him to go play every night whatever it took to get success and that was academic success as well so yes I think as I moved to you know as schools got more successful then bringing in all those traditional methods great curriculum all of that work but at that point it was whatever it took to succeed and giving a sense of pride and we'd stand outside getting all the kids into school, the senior team, it's one thing we do because as a child walks over the the threshold, it really matters what mood they were in. We'd had a boy turn up with a gun and that caused a lot of trouble. So, But by the time we finished, you know, the only thing trying to come over that threshold was someone in pink socks. You know, it's, it's raised the bar and the community liked it. So, When you're doing some of these actions, I wonder what's the time frame before you start seeing an improvement because yeah. I don't know, it might be little moments with one specific pupil that perhaps keeps you going a bit. But I wonder just in the sense, if you do feel like there's a lot against you, there must be points when you're not actually seeing anything. Isn't Massively. It? So back in those days, you basically had a year or so to do it. And we were run very much from central government and you'd be out of a job. And it was a bit football managery. So I remember in my first school, about my first academy, everyone was the local authority everyone thought would fail no one had done this school for 20 years she's going to fail just like anyone else and look at the staff she's got there so there was a big sort of concern and the DfE didn't believe at all that they were like you know so this is high risk and I remember um, about first half term calling thinking look they've got new uniforms on but it's not moving it's not moving as quickly as it should and I phoned up my advisor who's now a really good friend at the DfE and said said look I'm I can't do it it's going to fail so let's just deal with it now and he said yeah you're going to fail so you might as well just fail and we'll get rid of you at the end of the year so that liberated me a total lack of confidence but it really liberated me and we went on in that school you didn't feel the pressure no we went on to well I I just thought let's just do it so we'll probably all get kicked out anyway so I lit we literally became the most improved school in the country that year because I just thought right we're going to go for it and you start to get a reputation for this and future roles but I mentioned the introduction, Michael Gove said that he wanted to clone 23,000 of you when he was education secretary. Was that a helpful endorsement? <laughs> but not always seen as the, the most 
very popular in some parts, but not popular among everyone. You know, it's it's interesting, Katie, because I can see this kind of golden thread through education reform that started with Blair and Adonis and Gove really put his foot on the gas, you know, and did it slightly differently, but very much took that forward. I actually think education reform is the single best thing the government's done in the last 10 years. So... So go visited one of my schools and was giving a, in Norwich and was giving a local press interview and that's when he made that quote and I knew it would stick forever. <laughs> you can't, you I think he was probably just trying to say something about we need more good heads, but his um, prose was. Uh, but did all other teachers? I just wondered if people were a bit like, oh, now you look too party political. There's anything like that. You, you, it's always brought out, but on the other hand, I was an absolute paid up member of the academy reform movement and I think it's the most inspirational and best thing that's happened and when we look at education now when I go into schools now I rarely see schools as bad as the ones I had to take over back then we sometimes don't pat ourselves on the back enough for the change that's been made. Now I want to talk about your role as children's commissioner and particularly what's happening right now with attendance but just before we move to that I just wanted to ask one of the things that you reported to have done during your time um, leading in these schools was to deal with low attendance which touches on in a way to the pandemic was sending ultimately teachers around to just get the children out, out of their rooms and to the school. How exactly did that work and was everyone grateful for your efforts? So my second academy was in a Norwich estate and it was very much you know parents were working often in trade and the children and young people expected to go into those kinds of jobs and attendance at school in terms of low level was a bit of a problem and now what I wanted to do was show them the joys of the curriculum and open their minds you know and all this and we we worked really hard on ethos so we saw there was this low level poor attendance so I basically would fire up the minibus I got it all printed so it was like the Victory Academy we named the school after Lord Nelson we had bits of the victory in the school in the new build and I would send the deputy head out to collect the children around the town and they would they would go around the community they'd knock on the door mum would say come in and then they'd get the kids to get them into the minibus you only had to do that once or twice and uh, problem would be solved but I do think um, we used to get lots of pips and hoots around you know the children didn't necessarily love it but yeah they soon you do whatever it takes Katie I think that's the issue dragging people away from their playstations Uh, Um, (laughs) what's been the impact of the pandemic on young people yes so I mean we 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 know the answer to that in that when I took the role on, we went out and did a national survey, the Big Ass survey, and over half a million children responded to us. And they were children from every single local authority area. So 6% of UK's school-age population responded for every gender, every ethnicity, every, you, you name it. And they gave us a really clear and cohesive answer. We asked them, what do you need to thrive now? And what do you want for your future? So it's a massive kind of snapshot what what England's children think and what did they tell us they told us that their mental health well-being was a massive issue it was the number one thing they were concerned about that's how they'd frame it and I think that was about because I went around the country everywhere from Hansworth to Bristol to Gateshead and and the kids were upset about being isolated upset about not seeing their older relatives they were facing all sorts of things worried about you know families 
dad's job, you know, all these things. They were also worried about their education. So they wanted to get back to school. That came across loud and clear. And they wanted places to go, things to do. And that's why I'm always very keen on the extended school idea. So the sports, the drama, because they were they were not asking me to go to shopping malls. They were asking me, can we like play football again? Can we sort of just be together? So Rachel, in your role as Children's Commissioner, you've gone from basically being very hands-on in the classroom to a position where you can no longer do that in that sense what have been the biggest challenges in terms of that transition so I think understanding Westminster so I think it's a world like no other so as a chief executive of a trust of schools or in schools you can very much make what you need to happen happen and you're it's very clear I think I think so for me first off understanding Westminster and then thinking about how best to have impact because I didn't just want to raise problems that's one way of doing this role is to campaign and raise problems I actually wanted to have the trust of those I worked with whether that was ministers civil servants public you know local authorities children that the trust of them and the ability to work really hard to help get the solutions you know looking at solutions for children in care so it's getting involved in policy, learning how to move the levers, coming up with solutions. I mean, I want to be able to say, yes, we did that. Yes, we changed that for children. So not only do children want it, they've told us it in our surveys. You know, for example, children have told us our life online is really difficult, right? So it might be if you look at our survey, 14 to 17 year old girls are really unhappy online world what they're seeing there and some of the things are a real problem for them so what we've done is call in the porn companies call in the tech companies really work with ministers to influence the online bill come up with ideas write a guide for parents so it's all about trying to actually deliver solutions and make a difference now just two final questions one was just when you gave evidence to MPs ahead of your appointment I I don't even think it was a mini for all on the question of corporal punishment because your contemporaries in Scotland and Wales have called for a full ban on smacking. And I think at the time some complained that you hadn't come up with an opinion on it. I just wondered if you had since taking the role. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely against violence of any kind to children. There's no question about that. And I don't, I don't like smacking. And I don't think, I think culturally... Things have changed so much in this country. I didn't smack my own son, and I don't think that I don't think that's something that's a norm, and I don't think it's something people want to do. I just wanted to check back in at that point on the legal points and around around what the legal support was, and perhaps what I should have done is express this what I really felt more. And these are the things you learn, and that's what I was saying about Westminster. Yeah, all of a sudden, what you're saying it suddenly becomes a news story, and you're yeah. and you're it's almost doing that balancing yeah, act yeah now the final thing I just wanted to ask was just I want to ask everyone on this podcast to finish it which is what is the worst advice you ever received it might be that teacher saying you'd be a rubbish wife but um <laughs> yeah that, if that's, that's advice <laughs> yeah I, th- I think sister Anna telling me to concentrate on that my cooking was so bad and my wash and my desire not to spend time washing up meant that I'd never get a husband I think also my father thinking I should be a nurse when I can't cope with the sight of blood and I'm the least maternal person I think they're the two two worst bits of my advice thank you Rachel and thank you for coming on today 